Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Death on the Nile and I'm joined coincidentally by our, our World War One correspondent, Fred Cobb. Fred, what's up? Thank you for having me again. I'm excited uh, for our part one of two parts of our Kenneth Branagh series. Yeah, we, yeah, I'm making Fred do Belfast because it's going to be the last uh, Best Picture nominee we talk about because I slacked and didn't get to it in November. But uh, he had happened to like uh, note that he was interested in doing this one with me. And I, even after I told him he, I was drafting him for Belfast. And so he's also now the Kenneth Branagh correspondent. Uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> Death on the Nile is uh, the newest movie from Kenneth Branagh, uh, kind of a follow up of sorts to 2017's Murder on the Orient Express. So, you know, his second straight Agatha Christie adaptation I don't know if I should say second straight because he, you know, put out Belfast in between. Uh, but and you know, foul. oh well, yeah. Let's not talk about that one though, right? Uh, I'm sure he'd appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's you know, it's uh, you know, a, obviously in uh, a different adaptation of this Agatha Christie novel that has already been previously adapted at least once. More than that, maybe, right, Fred? Uh, at least twice, actually. Once yeah, in 1978, okay. and then once for a TV series in the early 2000s. Yeah, so his version, though, uh, you know, before we get to the present day, as I joked before, starts in World War One, where we get a little bit of a Hercule Poirot origin story, or at least Hercule Poirot mustache origin story. Uh, and uh, I was just joking because, like, it's this is like the like probably like the fourth podcast that like deals with World War One that Fred has joined for. Uh, but we uh, we meet the young soldier when he's there, and he's you know helping devise a a plan for the uh, Allied forces to. Uh, you know, kind of, I guess, reclaim some territory. And he uh, is able, unable to stop a lot of his uh, group from dying due to a booby trap that explodes and messes up his face uh, uh, to the point where uh, his 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 uh, lover and wife, a nurse, uh, she encourages him to grow a mustache to hide his scars. But he also is, despite her support, uh, you know, swears off love for a while, and which is very fortuitous because uh, this movie deals with a lot of matters of the heart. Uh, we jump to 1937, where Perot is kind of hanging out in this uh, jazz club. He sees a, uh, a jazz singer named uh, Salome Otterborn performing, uh, but he also witnesses uh, uh, a woman named uh, Jacqueline de, Bef- de Jacqueline de Belfort, goes by Jackie, played by Emma Mackey, who you might know from Netflix's Sex Education. She introduces uh, her fiance Simon Doyle, played by Army Hammer. We're gonna have to have a talk about him, Fred, uh, who honestly might be uh, either uh, you know just. Uh, very unluckily cast or actually, uh, you know, just uh, perfectly. perfectly. Uh, yeah, there's the, yeah. There, the, the, that argument can go both ways. So we'll have to we'll get into that. But uh, uh, Jackie is uh, engaged to Simon. She introduces him to her childhood friend, an heiress named Lynette Ridgway, played by Gal Gadot, uh, and uh, tries to get her to uh, hire Simon for a job. But they she and Simon share a dance on the dance floor and sparks fly. And we pick up six weeks later when Perot just happens to uh walk into a wedding that is between uh, Lynette and Simon, where he just uh, ab- apparently abandon- abandoned Jackie to go marry her. Uh, they are getting stalked by uh, Jackie, though, as she is very upset, a scorned lover, and uh, Lynette and Simon ask Perot to kind of help get her off their tails. And in an attempt to get some peace and quiet, Lynette rents out this cruise ship for all of her wedding guests uh, called the SS Karnak. This a wide variety of different people now joining them on this ship, including uh, and a doctor who used to be her fiance, played by a very, very against type Russell Brand. I mean, I, I, I mean, like I at one point I saw I saw this with our friends Adam and Kayla Fred, and at one point Kayla leans over and says to me, "Is that Russell Brand?" And I was like. I kind of see it, but I don't think so. Like he, I, he specifically <laughs> asked me that, and I still and I still didn't think it was him. <laughs> um, uh, he plays a doctor, like I said, in Lynette's former fiance. There is Annette Benning, who plays uh, the the mother of Book, who's like kind of the one other returning character from uh, Murder on the Orient Express, who uh, Perot just happens to kind of run into in uh, as, when he first gets to Egypt, even before he really comes across the wedding. Uh, there's uh, Rose Leslie, who is playing Lynette's mage. Her name is Louise. There is, uh, amongst, amongst others, there's also Letitia Wright playing uh, Salome, the jazz singer's niece. Her name is Rosalie. And I uh, just uh, a lot of other people, but those are the ones played by... Oh, and Annette Benning plays uh, Euphemia, who is uh, Book's mom. Yeah, and uh, just a... Just like I said, a, a very, very like deep cast of characters as you get in any Agatha Christie adaptation. We'll I'm sure we'll kind of mention a, some a couple of the others as we go, but it's again, I 
don't want to stay here for 10 minutes just reading off a cast list. And, but yeah, obviously, because this is a uh, Agatha Christie novel, not long after getting on the ship, some murders happen. And uh, Fred, I think we can talk about this movie a little more broadly before we actually start diving into the uh, specific uh, identities of these murders and the plot machinations, because I think there's a decent amount to hold on to as well. So I guess uh, where I'll first ask you is, uh, can you give us a little context for your, uh, your, uh, your your Agatha Christie knowledge. I know you've at least read this book. Uh, are, are are you like more well read in her uh, deeper uh, uh, bibliography? Uh, do you have a um, uh, did you were you, did you have strong feelings on 2017's murder on the Orient Express? What kind of expectations did you even come into this movie with, just based on your uh, experiences with Branagh's prior film and Christie's work? So I wouldn't call myself an expert on Agatha Christie. Yeah, that would definitely be a. Uh excessive to say sure. that but um one of uh my favorite books of all time is something she wrote and that's and then there were none mm. uh, which is a bit of an unusual book for her because it's not really a detective story but more of a psychological horror tale um but it does have some of her key elements primarily uh the setting which is uh remote isolated you have a cast of characters and you have a bunch of dead, bo dead bodies eventually mm. so very much uh, on brand for agatha christie in that sense uh, but you don't have a detective in there like Poirot or her other really famous creation, uh, Miss Marple. But other than that, uh, Death on the Nile was actually the only other book of hers that I've read. And I didn't even actually read it. I listened to it on audiobook, mm, okay. uh, which, by the way, I recommend because uh, Sir Kenneth Branagh himself actually reads it. Interesting. Which makes it kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, the thing is, I actually listened to that in late 2020 back when the movie was still supposed to come out around that time. And it's been pushed back repeatedly. I kind of lost count of how many times. You did such a good um, job of doing homework for movies that never came out. Like you read Dune and then that got delayed. Dune, yep. Mm -hmm. that got delayed. Yeah, absolutely. I was super well prepared <laughs> for all of them. And then all of a sudden, here we are a year later and uh, I finally get to take advantage of my knowledge uh, <laughs> that I accumulated. Uh, yeah, but uh, in all seriousness, I thought it was a really... Uh, Really good read, really fun read in the sense that uh, Agatha Christie is always really good at um, introducing a whole bunch of characters, all of whom are somehow relevant to the plot. Not necessarily to the central mystery, though, because another thing she really loves to do is that Poirot will always accidentally solve one or two additional crimes hmm. while he's going after the main one. Um, and Bronner did a pretty good job trimming some of that fat for this adaptation, because otherwise things would have gotten even more muddled and confusing than they already are. Um, but my expectation when I uh, see an Agatha Christie movie is just that you have a big ensemble of fun characters, which Murder on the Orient Express did as well. Uh, that one actually had an even more impressive cast. And uh, yeah, I really just expected it to be um, a fun interaction between uh, Branagh's Poirot and uh, all, all the suspects, and that's yeah. not, which is not really what we got here. And I think we're going to take a bit of a deeper dive uh, into that uh later in our discussion because sure. something i find really interesting about brana's portrayal of poirot is in the book he's almost farcical a very caricaturized figure uh, mm. he's a bit overweight uh, a connoisseur of the finer things in life uh super narcissistic uh and this version of poirot is a little bit more conflicted in that sense where on one hand sure he has a lot of confidence and he's very braggadocious about uh, being the greatest detective of all time uh, but you see that he's also hiding a lot of insecurities, uh, part of which get established in that opening scene that you already mentioned. Well, uh, so that's why I think there is a more interesting, more nuanced portrayal of Poirot in Branagh's adaptations uh, that you don't necessarily get in Agatha Christie's novels or some of the previous adaptations of the material. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I think I don't think I particularly really like this movie. But one of the things I think I liked about it more than his murder on the Orient Express was what he did with Poirot. Uh, because I went back and I was like, I, I really don't even have very good memories of Murder on the Orient Express, or not good memories, clear memories, I should say. I knew I didn't really love it, but I like I went back and looked at my letterbox review. It wasn't one of my more detailed ones. I was just like, man, for like a cast like this and a murder mystery on a train, I wanted some more excitement, and I just didn't. And th that kind of reminded me, like it just wasn't really all that interesting. There wasn't anywhere near as much action as I would say, and there wasn't this one. But also the way that movie wraps up, there's like a a lot of weight is given to the decision that. Uh, Perot does it makes at the end of that movie to like not turn those people in and we are supposed to like I think really feel something about him he he's feels like he's compromising something when he does that or that's what we're led to believe but I don't feel like we we they gave us enough of 
about him and hit in what, what makes him tick and uh, what kind of built up the code that he had. I don't think there was really enough of that for me to really care about that big decision at the end. Whereas here, I actually think like the time that they spend trying to like kind of tell us about him is actually fairly well spent and like helps the rest of the movie. And that was one of the things I actually really appreciated about this one. I agree. And the setting really helps in the sense of defining him more as a character, because as you already mentioned, love and passion are some of the key elements of the storyline here. And this version of Foro has really shut himself off to all of those emotions. So what is happening on the SS Karnak with people being in love with each other, there's a lot of betrayal, a lot of intrigue. Uh, in a lot of ways, that is his very own personal hell. Like he can't really fully relate to those emotions. And that makes the whole thing a lot more personal. And he as a character is much more compromised and interesting as a result of that. Uh, because he gets, I mean, he really gets put through the ringer a couple of times here where characters yell at him. Uh, he is kind of shut down in some ways where normally he's the guy who's conducting the interrogations and getting all the information. And a lot of times he, he just uh, throws his suspicions at people and he gets a new piece of information uh, that makes him realize that he's been barking up the wrong tree. And that's really, I think, the key component of Death on the Nile for me. Uh, for a detective who's usually very successful at what he does, and there's always that big moment at the end where he lays out the entire uh, murder and what led up to it, and he gets to be super brilliant by talking about all the evidence that he found, and there's a big celebration. Oh, great, we found the murderer now. They're being led away in handcuffs. You don't really have that here because I would say this case is one of his most uh, colossal failures as a detective because multiple people do end up dead. And in no small part, that's because it takes him forever to really start putting the right pieces together. And I think that that makes it a more fascinating murder mystery in some ways than some of the other ones. Um, because Agatha Christie has, was, it was always very good at constructing a murder mystery, but sometimes her portrayal of Poirot and the characters in her book was kind of shallow. But you don't really have that here because Poirot does get to be such an interesting element here where uh, he's very conflicted about everything that's going on. And I think that made it a more interesting movie to me than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. And I, th I, well, I think I could say this without giving anything away, but like the way he, and, and yeah, I, I had that same thought when people kept dying. I was like, all right, is, is he, is he really ever going to like uh, kind of get to the bottom of this thing? But the other thought I had when I was kind of like watching him solve all this stuff, and I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say this, but the method in which he does it, like you said, he, uh, he, well, I guess, it, which is kind of standard for these stories, like he kind of interviews suspect by suspect and kind of uh, figures something out. But, you know, ultimately, like he, he kind of like, and this is it's funny, it was, it, was a, uh, it was a criticism I also had when I went back and read about Murder of the Orient Express. You don't see him put together all the dots in real time. Like, he just kind of reveals a lot of it at the end. And I, is, that, is that something that, like, is, like, standard enough that, or you just kind of expected it from reading the book that that doesn't bother you? Because, like, part of me is, like, it feels like we see him get a lot of clues to, like, chase down things that are somewhat red herrings before he gets to the main thing. And I'm like, is that a bunch of wasted motion or not? And I'm that was one thing I kind of struggled with. So that's something that Christie was always very good at. Every mm -hmm. single piece of evidence somehow was tied back again to the, not necessarily to the main story, but some larger aspect uh, of the plot, whether that was some kind of other crime that Poirot was investigating or it was ultimately tied back to uh, whatever he was looking into and it's brought up again at the end. Um, the problem with that is that if you are really going to incorporate all of the elements of Death in the Nile uh, into an adaptation, you're quickly at a three-hour, four-hour movie. And some of those uh, subplots were cut out here. So that's part of the problem. Uh, I don't remember who actually wrote the screenplay, but it's not Agatha Christie, obviously. So you have to make some adjustments uh, with the story, and you'll have some extraneous material that'll kind of stay in the interrogations that may not pay off the so way some, it did in the novel. There's someone named Michael Green that wrote uh, last year's Jungle Cruise uh, and Murder on the New York Express and had a screenwriting credit on uh, Blade Runner 2049 and Logan So and Alien Covenant and Green Lantern. So he's had his ups and downs in Hollywood. I was going to say yeah, that's quite quite a mixed pack. Of yeah, but uh, but but uh, but but the sole screenwriting credit on Death on the Nile for whatever that's worth. So it sounds like he had a pretty big task at hand to like cut this thing down. 
yeah, and I mean, like I said, like I think he actually did a pretty adequate job with it. But the problem mm-hmm. is, again, when you have a very carefully laid out murder mystery, uh, once you start removing pieces and interchanging them, not to mention replace different characters and change their motivations and kind of fuse different people together, uh, all of a sudden you end up with a hodgepodge of material that might not necessarily measure up to what the book was all about. Uh, so I think he did a decent job with it. But yeah, every so well, often I had the same feeling where Poirot suddenly started pulling information out of his hat uh, that I wasn't entirely sure where he would have gotten that from. Yeah. Uh, and I, and again, like, as you said, like, you got the, it was an admirable job overall, I guess, of trying to condense something uh, like this, though. At the same time, and maybe he, maybe they all did connect, but I don't know, if, you know, and I, I feel weird like complaining about like something that is like a tentpole of Agatha Christie stories. And maybe it is kind of like it's hard, it's just hard to adapt. And I, I suppose all of those different like little individual threads that Perot chases down here, they actually probably do all connect in their own way. But if you put a gun to my head right after I walked out of the theater, I don't think I could have explained that to you. So I don't know if that's really a problem or not, but it's like there's all these other ex- other plot devices and other uh, rabbit holes and, and leads that he chases down that I have trouble even understanding how they're connected to the main thing. Whereas like all the ultimate clues that really do like crack the ultimate co- uh, mystery, those we don't see. We, he solves off screen. And I, I think it's kind of just a weird choice. So are you going to say something else? Because I was going to move on. But No, I was just going to say... Um there is a fairly major change Mm. in the script compared to the book. And that kind of uh, makes things a little awkward in some ways when he interviews all of those different people and he puts all the pieces together in the book. They're not actually one big wedding party. Mm. A lot of them are just randomly on the cruise as well. Some people arrived without uh, Lynette and Simon knowing about their arrival so it's okay. not like a big wedding party that's taking a river cruise together. It's just a bunch of random people who kind of add different pieces to the puzzle. And that's why it becomes so interesting when you realize, oh, wait a minute, this person actually wasn't here coincidentally. He was actually here for a very specific purpose that directly ties back to Lynette and Simon. And gotcha. here you already know that they're all tied together. So it doesn't really feel as, like, as big of a payoff uh, when Poirot actually reveals all of that information. Uh, in the book, you really have those big aha moments where you're thinking, oh, wow, that makes a lot more sense now. He would also be in Egypt. Gotcha. Okay. I got to ask you about Army Hammer now. So <laughs> he, uh, it's, it's kind of well known, and people have kind of joked about this being a cursed cast of sorts. Uh, you know, Army Hammer had, uh, I mean, I don't know where to, st- I, I guess the first place to start is the very serious accusations of him, uh, you know, being a sexual predator of sorts. Uh, varying different allegations of, uh, you know, being uh, just like way too, uh, way too aggressive in unwanted ways and sexual encounters with women, but also very weird online postings about like possibly like being into cannibalism, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so obviously those kind of run the gamut from ridiculous to very uh, serious. And there's uh, Letitia Wright who had to like shut down the Black Panther uh, two production because she refused to get vaccinated against COVID nineteen and. Uh, and, and like had trouble getting back into the country where they were filming because of that and really kind of slowed all that down and has shared a lot of misinformation online. And I think there might've been one other problematic uh, cast member that I'm just not thinking of at the moment. I think Russell um, Brand also has voiced oh, some problematic oh, opinions on vaccinations. Oh, oh, I did not know that. Yeah. I mean, it's just a shame because I actually really like this performance, but uh, um, oh yeah, he, Oh, oh yeah. So he, uh, and I'm seeing now on his thing in September, 2021, he shared information on how to avoid COVID-19 safety measures for people attending his tour. (laughs) So, uh, not great. So I asked you, Fred, and this is, this is kind of awkward because, you know, like, uh, army hammer is such a big part of this movie that, Mm -hmm. uh, they couldn't just pull a, like say Christopher Plummer, uh, Kevin Spacey, all the money in the world thing to, uh, talk about another movie that we talked about a, a while ago. Now, uh, he's, you just couldn't have done that with this movie. It's too big of a production. Too much money at stake, too big of a part, and that wasn't like quarantined off in, uh, in a way kind of like that was. Funny enough, I think they're actually going to be able to do that for the part that he had in uh, Taika Waititi's Australian Rules football movie that is coming uh, at some point, hopefully at the end of this year. Uh, yeah, was that one fully shot already? Uh, I think, yeah, I think it had shot, but I think that's like, you know, a movie on such a scale, and his part is such that like they are actually going to do reshoots to, uh, I don't remember who, I don't remember who they cast in his place, but they're yeah, able to do Oh, right. Good call. Uh, uh, which is interesting because I think a uh, different kind of actor for sure. But, uh, 
glad that that's going to happen because I wanted to be able to, you know, enjoy a Taika Waititi movie and not feel bad about doing so. Uh, but th- th- it was just unavoidable here. And I I understand why, like, there's too much at stake, too many people relying on it for them to, like, they can't just, like, just because there's been these allegations against him, uh, that didn't mean they couldn't put this movie out. It probably meant a lot to other people in the cast. Uh, they they kind of just had to do it and had to just deal with the repercussions. And to be fair to the producers, like, they couldn't have really known this much crazy shit was going to come out. Uh, when they yeah. cast them or at the time they filmed it. So it's just unavoidable. So I ask you, um, are you able to like compartmentalize when you're watching this and forget about all this crazy shit that Army Hammer and to a lesser extent, I guess, Letitia Wright and Russell Brand have been involved in? Um, are you able to compartmentalize that and just enjoy this on its own terms? Or are you just thinking about that during the movie? Because I think Adam and Kayla and I uh, were kind of in the latter camp, but, and we, but we still had fun with it. Uh, so what was your experience watching it, kind of knowing these things about this guy? I mean, let me be perfectly clear. I'm by no means advocating for real life scumbags to start playing on screen scumbags. Of course. I don't want Kevin Spacey to have a big comeback and <laughs> a whole bunch of bad guys. I, I'm not saying that at all. But you're already in the situation, obviously. The movie has been fully, uh, fully shot. Uh, he's in it. You have to put it out somehow. And I'm not a big believer in burying a movie because some people in the cast. Uh, yeah, are not a of, the controversy. Because a lot of other people worked hard on it. Exactly. And I think that is a very fair and very valid argument that I fully endorse as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no way that they should have buried that. I'm glad it got a release. And the truth is, it kind of accentuates his performance here almost because he does play such a big scumbag. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a character you're supposed to like. I mean, <laughs> our first encounter with him is uh, he's like super in love with his fiance. They have a very... Uh, passionate very sexy dance on the dance floor <laughs> he gets introduced to his fiance's best friend uh, and six weeks later he's on a honeymoon in egypt with said best friend <laughs> so obviously this is not supposed to be a guy you're supposed to be rooting for um and when you have a guy like army hammer in that part it kind of helps uh kind of set the stage for how you're supposed to feel about that guy for the rest of the movie again i don't think that you should specifically cast actors in those roles because their real life persona matches the persona of the person they're playing on screen. Uh, but in this scenario, it kind of worked out almost. I mean, don't get me wrong. If the allegations against him are true and I have no reason to believe that they're not, the guy should never be allowed to work on a movie again. But but, but at least he wasn't cast as a hero. Yeah. Exactly. And now that you have it here already, uh, it's actually uh, yeah. a, a nice fusion of real life and performance. <laughs> sure um you know i uh I, so adam and kayla and i we just made like cannibal jokes the whole movie and mm. uh just like say like every time like someone says something nice like every time like jacqueline said something nice about him in the beginning there is uh, an absolutely ridiculous scene where uh he and uh gal gadot are like kind of dry humping as they uh are as, as they're like standing on top of one of those egyptian monuments and before oh, a border yeah. gets pushed on them and it's just like this guy watching this guy like engage in very odd somewhat sexual acts knowing what we know it was just like it was just too it was too much and i couldn't like i it took me out of the movie just knowing what i knew about him though i i I agree in theory with what you were saying in that like at least he was there to play a scumbag so that's that and i for the most part i i actually didn't know about the problematic russell brand stuff or uh in in the letitia wright stuff she she was in the such a small part of the movie comparatively that like i was able to do whatever but it's it's just like it's, it's just kind of funny that like these movies rely on like these big uh, ensemble cast and they just happen to like you know stepping in a little bit but the, the shame of it all is that like army ha- hammer uh like you said probably shouldn't work coming anywhere near a film set again if any of those th- number of things he's been accused of are true but like still like uh kind of talented and can kind of play uh can kind of play scumbaggy even if he like you know is kind of also can like play that clean cut guy you know he kind of gets to do the same thing a little bit in uh, sorry to bother you which is a a, pr- a pretty interesting movie where he gets to play just like not a good dude so he is very capable of this mode and i is well cast um for that part i would say in a in a, in a vacuum though we're not in a vacuum so yeah i guess um, I, I guess I can ask you about a couple of these other performances without getting too into spoilery territory, and then we can jump there. And or I might actually ask you about the look of the movie too. Um, mm-hmm. Gal, Gal Gadot is someone who I think like a lot of people like to talk about is just like actually objectively not being a good actress these days. Uh, she thinks she takes yeah. a lot of heat for things in general, though I think most people still generally like the first Wonder Woman movie. And I don't even know if it's actually that limited by her as a performer. 
if it's that limited by her as a performer, I think she does what she needs to do in that movie. But I something that's now stuck in my head since I had lunch with a friend of the podcast, Josh Brown, a few weeks ago. And like somehow we ended up on the topic of I don't know if it was this movie or another or maybe it was going to be um, it was it's, I think we we're talking about uh, maybe a couple different Anna de Armas movies, but also how uh, it somehow it came up like we're you know, uh, she's going to be like Gal Gadot is going to be in, uh, the, the remake of the Hitchcock movie to catch a thief, I think, or something like that. And, uh, and, and like, I don't remember how it came up. Maybe Josh was saying he wasn't a huge fan of her acting, but basically just made the statement, like anything that, you know, uh, Gal Gadot's in, it should just be Anna Darmus instead. And now I can't get that out of my head. Uh, you know, after, after like watching Anna Darmus and like no time to die and, uh, all the stuff that she has coming in, like, being really great and knives out, uh, ironically, you know, an Agatha Christie type event. Uh, it's like, man, I can just, I, I, I can kind of see that. And I think she's probably objectively a better actress though. One thing I noted in your letterbox review, like th- this part of Lynette, uh, calls for the kind of, uh, presence even if it's not acting screen presence that i think gal Gadot can give off if nothing else so i think that was kind of part of what made her work for you is that fair to say that's accurate yeah and, and i share the criticisms that others have voiced about uh her acting abilities i mean mm-hmm. i think she's very good at playing a certain type of role i think she was perfectly uh serviceable in the fast and furious movies as well but she's also apparently going to play cleopatra Uh, Mm. at some point in the not too distant future which is going to be a whole different uh challenge for her as an actual actress so that's i think when we'll really get to see whether she can deliver the goods when she needs to yeah but i mean this performance doesn't really require that much in terms of genuine acting i mean she has to be pretty scared you know a little bit you know yeah yeah and she she does all right with that but ultimately she's supposed to be this like super radiant personality that you believe a guy could fall in love for immediately and dump his fiance for uh yeah and i think in that sense it works i mean she has that like grandiose entrance at the jazz club where she walks in and time just kind of stops and everybody's looking at her and i think she fulfills that quality as a, as a, as an appearance i mean she was wasn't she Miss Israel or Miss Universe at some point, even? I, I, I believe I, I believe she actually probably was Miss Universe at some point. That sounds right. Right. So what I'm really trying to say is she knows how to make an entrance. Mm-hmm. And it's very important for that particular scene that as soon as we meet her, we realize, okay, this is somebody that people have very strong feelings about. Either they absolutely love her and want to be with her, or they dislike her and they want to murder her. So mm-hmm. you get to a point where... Uh, at the very beginning, you already have all of these different uh, conversations going on about do people like her? Do people not like her? Do people have reasons uh, to be unhappy with her? And yeah. I'll fact check us just now. In 2004, she won Miss Israel and then competed in Miss Universe, did not win oh, Miss Universe. Okay. But yeah, funny the other thing I just happened to see on her uh on her um imdb she actually auditioned for the uh the the bond girl part in quantum of solace but lost to olga kurienko so it's kind of funny given that we talked a bit about that last year and she obviously like we've talked about some fast and furious movies before and uh she is uh in those too there's a quick side note i want to make i guess about that Mm -hmm. character because it's kind of interesting did you watch the 1978 version of it no i have not I'll mention it later in the recommendations. It is available on the Criterion channel right now. Interesting. But the interesting thing, but the interesting thing about that movie is uh, the cast is insanely stacked. Really, I did the I did the math earlier, and the cast in that movie has a combined twenty six Oscar nominations spread Jeez. across seven performers. Uh, you've got Betty Davis, Angela Lansbury, Maggie Smith, David Niven, Sir Peter Ustinov. So this just insane ensemble of characters. Um, and the problem is Lynette Ridgway, later Lynette Doyle, she's supposed to be the showstopper. And the actress who plays her is probably the least memorable aspect of that movie, which mm. is not a good thing when you're supposed to have a character who really just dominates the scene. And I think that's why the casting of Gal Gadot here actually works, because she is somebody who makes an impression. And even though you have a lot of other famous people around her, she still kind of steals the show whenever she does appear in any given location. I think that's a very important thing that this movie improved compared to the 1978 version. Yeah, that is, that, I'm looking at that cast now. That is a lot. You know, the other, it's funny. Uh, I, I guess the one other performance I want to shout out before we, because it's easier to talk about the others in the spoiler section, I would say. The, the other one I would note is 
that I already mentioned Emma Mackey plays Abigail, or excuse me, Emma Mackey plays Jacqueline. As I noted, she's on Sex Education, a show I really like on Netflix. And it's kind of cool to see someone like that, that you know is giving a great performance on like a, a relatively small scale like that, like get an opportunity like this. And I, I, I mean, I really like her screen presence. I mean, she has to like, really go for it with what that character turns into. And it's funny, like I I was reading your review and I, again, I didn't know about the 78 one. And you said you actually preferred her to Mia Farrow, who's like actually a pretty like uh, accomplished actress. Yeah. The thing is, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a fan of Mia Farrow myself. Yeah. I just watched uh, Hannah and her sisters recently, and she was very good in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was also the kind of role that she's very good at playing. And I don't think uh, Jackie DeBelfort is necessarily a character that, lends herself to her strengths as an actress. Mm. Um, I really just like Emma Mackey's more almost psychotic performance, I guess, where you <laughs> really get the sense that this is a super jealous woman who shows up on her ex-fiance's honeymoon to make life miserable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mia Farrow just isn't that type of actress. I didn't really feel that in the 1978 version that she's that constant presence of terror that would drive Lynette insane. Right. And I think Emma Mackey does a really good job with that uh, starting with the very first scene actually i already mentioned that very sort of like sexual dance that they do at the jazz club and you really see that she is super in love with this guy and that she would be insanely jealous as soon as uh he leaves her and again i know Ari hammer isn't necessarily the kind of guy that uh, you want associated with that anymore but i think she does a really good job establishing that persona for later on when you realize that uh, she's turned full-on stalker yeah, I think that's important to set the stage for that early. I was totally there for whatever she was doing while simultaneously being able to like just really get a kick out of like Army Hammer, like doing some incredibly weird dance moves, given what we like, <laughs> yeah. given what we know about him. Like Adam and Kayla and I were like laughing a ton at that. Well, at the same time, I'm like, well, I'm happy she's getting to really do something pretty special here. And, uh, and like, and she is in a slightly different mode in that first scene than has to, when, when, before she has to turn into the scorn lover. And I think she's, uh, very good in both modes. Uh, last thing before we, uh, move on to spoilers, uh, this movie, um, it has to feel grand, uh, opulent. They are in a very nice river, uh, river cruise on the Nile. And I just think it kind of looks like it was shot on a green screen. And I'm wondering, did you get that feeling? And does that even bother you, though? So I'll first add the caveat that Egypt is a country that's currently being run by a ruthless military dictatorship. And I don't think that's necessarily a country well, you want to shoot in. I'm not saying they should shoot on location, but I saw some on Wikipedia. Like they, they, they thought about shooting in Morocco, and they're just like, we'll just do it all in London. Right. Like I said, I just wanted to put it out yeah. there first. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not saying they needed to go into Egypt. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I, I did say in my letterbox review that some of the uh, like stage setting scenes uh, along the Nile River really reminded me of Assassin's Creed Origins, which is set in ancient Egypt. Uh, <laughs> and you never want your you never want your CGI to be compared to a video game cutscene. Um, I will say I did get that sense of sort of opulence and grandeur that Brana was going for from it. I will give him that. Uh, but it's still surprising that it just didn't look especially real in a lot of scenes. Like you could very clearly tell that it was CGI and obviously it's CGI. We know that. But you also need a certain amount of authenticity uh, to suspend your disbelief. Um, and when I looked at that, I just kept thinking, no, this doesn't really look like 1930s Egypt to me. This looks like some sort of uh, fantasy setting uh, for Egypt. And that's kind of unfortunate uh, when you have a director like Brana, who's made big budget pictures before, um, that the CGI looks a little, yeah, just kind of half-assed in some of those scenes. It says in the in the filming section on Wikipedia, it says a boat was recreated, but it doesn't give a lot more detail than that. Um, I haven't, so I don't know exactly what all goes into that. I, I I found the boat fine. I thought they that that as a setting itself was fine. It's just like every time they shot they, the the camera was on water. It didn't. I didn't buy that it was actual water. Um, yeah. So I think that 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 was kind of where like so some some good production design and then like you know just. Uh, the way they had to work around the limitations they gave themselves, uh, I could kind of see the seams a little bit. And that's a little disappointing because, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I thought Murder on the Orient Express for my criticisms of it. Like, I still uh, enjoyed the set of that train. And, I mean, that that's a little easier to pull off without feeling all CGI because it's, like, you know, all taking it in place in, like, one interior setting. But, like, you know, I guess I just... Uh, 
I, because I know these movies have a lot of resources behind them and are supposed to look a certain way. I guess I just had higher expectations in that regard, which is what I'll say. But, uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like Fred though, like before we move to spoilers, like you, you found enough here to like hold on to that. You think it's probably worth people checking out. Would you say? I would say so. Yeah. And, um, again, we have this conversation every single time we've talked about a new release during the pandemic. I don't know if the numbers are going to justify, uh, a sequel or I don't really know if it's a sequel but Brana playing Poirot again in another movie I, I kind of like like him to get the opportunity he seems to enjoy playing the character uh, and I do think it's a very good performance so honestly I would say yeah it's worth seeing uh, it had enough good scenes and uh, enough interesting interplay between the different actors that uh, it's something something to go watch. And I know, I know a lot of people didn't because the Super Bowl was last weekend mm-hmm. uh, and releasing a new movie on Super Bowl weekend is always a very dangerous endeavor. Um, so maybe something you can go see this weekend instead. Yeah, I mean, I, I would more recommend people probably like spend their time these next few weeks, like kind of finishing out the best movies of 2021. But uh, at the same time, like uh, I would not be upset if there were another one of these movies. It's like, I feel like he's maybe closer to cracking the code with them and uh you know maybe there's like a version of it that they can do for i don't know less money depending on what the setting is if that's if that turns into an issue i know that the first one made a lot of money actually uh and but just it's just like who knows like fred said with the with the economics these days and how everything works but i i'm perfectly happy to like i I like mystery stuff enough that i'd be happy if it if it if it if they found a way to make another one happen and i'm sure they like would find interesting actors for a lot of the roles as they as they did here but uh we're going to move on to the spoiler section. So if you just listen to this point, unsure whether or not to dive into that and decide you want to, then come back and listen to the rest. We'll timestamp it for you as we always do. Fred, as far as spoilers, I guess where I'll start is I'm not even going to ask you like what you were surprised by because uh, you've read the book, but I guess the, well, one thing I guess I'll ask you first though, like is the actual like outcome, even if like they change some of the side mysteries, is the actual heart of the story the same as far as uh, like, Simon and Jackie, like kind of being in cues together all along. Is that straight from the book? That is straight from the book. Yeah. Okay. So uh, like, yeah, well, I saw like our friend Daniel Lima posted. I think he like called it from the second scene. I will say I didn't, but I guess I'm wondering uh, without like, I'm not going to ask you for 20 minutes, like to compare book or not book or whatever like that. Uh, were there any choices that they made with respect to what they did show that you think were like that, that made this actual like, central mystery as it revealed itself work for you uh, better than it might have if they made a couple wrong decisions? So first of all, it worked very well in the book because uh, the final reveal actually did catch me off guard. Logan Mm. and I were listening to it together while we were driving and we kept thinking, oh, wait a minute. Like he's eliminated every single suspect at this point. Like who's Uh, left? Because because we know that Simon couldn't have done it because he was shot, right? So Uh. (laughs) there's absolutely no way that he could have been the one to walk into a room. Uh, and yeah, we didn't uh, didn't even consider that there might have been another factor that uh, would have enabled him to do that. So it's it's done very well in the book. Well, I mean, and- it's done well, but at the same time, like I was saying before, when I was talking around all this stuff, it's like making the leap to someone shooting themselves is like a big one to make for them just to like figure it out off screen. But I guess maybe like if you're paying more attention to like all the different guns in this movie, people have different size guns and that tips them off to certain stuff. Maybe if I had followed that better and I knew my caliber of weapon better, maybe that wouldn't have like been as hard to follow. Yeah, there's also much ado uh, made about some missing nail polish, uh, which right, right. obviously has to be used somehow, and it's uh, the fake blood that he uses when mm-hmm. Jackie initially uh, shoots him but doesn't actually uh, hit him. I think it's kind of unfair for me to really criticize or judge the movie on how it lays out those details because knowing the, the final outcome of his investigation, I was obviously a lot more interested in picking up on those clues, and I was kind of curious uh, at what point it became obvious that it would be Jackie and Simon uh, having collaborated on killing Lynette. Mm. Um, and it, it, it is kind of interesting because um, when there's that scene where Jackie initially shoots Simon, I was very curious about, okay, so how, how could this possibly have happened? Because I know that Simon needs to walk out, go to Lynette's room, shoot her, and then come back. <laughs> so I kept waiting for the second gunshot, and I didn't hear it because I totally forgotten that there was a handkerchief that silenced the second shot. Mm. So there were a couple of things that I was on the lookout for that if you're being introduced to this murder mystery for the very first time, uh, you wouldn't really have paid attention to. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the central investigation plays out the same way that it did in the book. The only difference 
to the book in that sense, no pun intended, is that book is not actually the third victim. Uh, mm. Salome Otterborn is the one who sees uh, Lynette's maid getting killed, and she's the one who ends up being shot during uh, an interrogation with Poirot. Mm. And obviously, the movie made a fairly big change here uh, in that sense. But which, is, that, which I think works okay because, like, you actually kind of do buy that Poirot likes him and would be affected by that. Yeah, and there's there are a handful of similar characters in the book, but uh, there's nobody actually in there quite like that. Uh, there is a character in the name Tim Allerton, and he is also traveling with his mother, uh, and he was also responsible for stealing the necklace. So that lines up. Uh, but Tim isn't really the investigative partner for Poirot in the book. That role is assumed by another guy named Colonel Race, uh, who mm. doesn't show up in here at all. And there's a pretty good reason for that. Two pretty good reasons, actually. A, because his only function in the book is really for Poirot to bounce ideas off of him. So he doesn't really serve much of a character function, except to serve as an audience for Poirot to talk his ideas through with. And mm. the second thing is that he's kind of an, he's a colonial administrator. Uh, for the British Empire in Egypt. And that's not necessarily the most uh, ideal person to have in your story nowadays, especially hmm. when you're making a clear attempt uh, to diversify your cast. Uh, so he, he's kind of a, an old relic of what would have been appropriate in the 1930s, uh, but not necessarily a character who in 2022 needs to be around. So I'm kind of glad that they made that choice to remove him and bring another character in who Poro might have had a more personal connection with. Sure. Well, okay. So. I guess you mentioned some of the other characters that kind of came in and how they diversified the cast and all that. There's a lot of dynamics going on with these cast members that I didn't really want to get into in the first part of the podcast. And I don't even necessarily want to run through all of them now. Cause again, it's like very long, very complicated. You have a uh, book actually like, you know, secretly having a relationship with Rosalie uh, or secretly from Perot for like at least a portion of the movie, though his mom kind of knows about it and disapproves of her and, that becomes its own thing. On top of that, you also have uh, Mrs. Bowers and uh, Marie Van Schuyler having more to the relationship that meets the eye. There's its own little thing about, uh, I guess, uh, that gives uh, Louise motive, uh, the Rose Leslie character Lynette's maid, and that like she tried to prevent her from getting married to someone. And there's just like a lot. Of, and then like another thing where it's like uh, her cousin who like looks after her estate, like has some kind of like iffy motives, but like, it's never really totally spelled out. Like he's trying to get them to sign some papers that could probably do something, but like, we never actually really like figure out exactly what those papers are for until like very, very close to the end, I think. And so there's like a lot of stuff that, which is understandable that they have to, they have to cast some doubt into like all of these characters for uh, one reason or another. But I'm wondering like, what, were there any of these different plot lines that like it tried to pull off that like you got something more out of than the rest? Like, oh, that kind of really worked for me. And I found that pretty interesting the way they went about doing that. So there's a key problem with this entire movie. And mm -hmm. the fact that we had to do a spoiler section about Lynette's murder is kind of telling because this is a murder mystery. And, we yeah, didn't and it, wastes like, wait, it wastes like halfway through to do the murder. Exactly. And that's why you can't really spoil who the first victim is because it's such an integral part of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, I think, a bit of an issue here because Poirot, as a protagonist, can't really start working as the protagonist until a crime has been committed, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't really have enough time for a lot of these interactions to play out properly. And that's... I think part of the reason why a lot of the information we get feels a bit rushed. Like he sits mm. down with one person, talks to them, you find out something major, he sits down with the next person, something else is revealed, and you don't have a lot of breathing room for these reveals to properly land before you kind of move on to the next step, or there's another body actually that they have to look at. Mm. Um, what I will say is what really did work for me is Book's relationship with Rosalie. Not necessarily because of how great their interactions are with each other. I'm not sure if they necessarily had. I don't know if they, they, almost, they, they almost had. They didn't have that much, actually. Yeah. Like time where they're sharing the screen. You more hear about him talking about their relationship. They're sitting next to each other. At one that, that, that scene right before uh, Jackie, Jacqueline shoots uh, Simon. But you don't really see them doing that much together. Right. So on that level, I'm not sure their relationship worked for me all that well. Mm -hmm. But I've said this earlier. It does work very well in the sense that Poirot doesn't really fully understand what is going on because he can't really put himself into that emotional state uh, that two people in love with each other would do crazy things uh, to actually end up together because his mother is not approving of it. 
Uh, they don't really have enough money to make a life for themselves. And that's why he has such a hard time wrapping his head around uh, the entire thing. And that's what leads to this really awkward encounter where he exposes them as a couple in front of uh, Book's mother who reacts very poorly to the entire thing. And that's, I think, when you first realize that Poirot's grip on the entire situation is really slipping. Hmm. Uh, because if Poirot had been a little bit more like his old self, he would have handled that whole situation much smarter. Hmm. Uh, and instead, he has all the wrong people in the same room together, and it leads to a lot of hostility that makes it even more difficult for him to perform his job correctly. And that's really why I think that Brana's take on this character is so interesting, because he tries really hard to bring aspects to Poirot that, again, you don't really see in the book, and you definitely didn't see in the 1978 version. So that actually added something new to someone like me who's familiar with the book already and came to this uh, fully expecting to just get a rehash of uh, what I already knew and instead yeah. I actually got a little, little bit more of a new perspective on things. And I guess that's somewhat informed by him being so adverse to love and that like he's maybe uh, less apt to handle those situations deftly. So, and again, I think they, you know, maybe did the, did the work of like kind of setting that up, how it's just going to be like kind of an uncomfortable process for him because he, so much of the motivations of all of these characters are actually being driven by love and uh, what they'll do for it. Whereas like that's something pro just really isn't going to relate to all that much. So I, th I think that's, it's like at least an interesting uh, push pull there if nothing else. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, sac the sacrifice there is of course, the whole affair becomes a lot more somber. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in the 1978 version, you had <laughs> Angela Lansbury as Salome Otterborn wasn't a jazz performer but she was actually a novelist of uh really trashy romance and erotic books mm. and every single time she talked she also kind of talked like a character in one of those books so that made things really funny betty davis uh as mrs van schuyler was a lot more extreme in her views and really just kind of elitist and arrogant every single time she opened her mouth so the 1978 version of this is genuinely funny Whereas here you have a lot of uh, really disheartening events and scenes where you don't really get too much humor in the material anymore. And I guess ultimately you have to make the decision whether that is something you need out of this material. Because if you do, then this is going to definitely catch you off guard. Sure. Uh, any other thoughts on just like how they actually pulled off that ending when he when he kind of gets them all in the room? I, I, I like again, I already voiced my frustrations about how some of that stuff happens off screen. But were there any other kind of moments or beats in that last act that uh, stuck with you or that you appreciated? I'm not entirely sure if I like the choice necessarily that Poirot is caught off guard by Simon and Jackie. Well, I shouldn't say Simon and Jackie killing themselves because Jackie is the one who makes a decision for both of them. Um, in the book, it's strongly implied, if not flat out stated, I don't remember, that he actually allows her to keep the gun so she can kill herself. Because Ooh. otherwise, they would have been turned over to the authorities. They probably would have gone on a lengthy trial. Uh, they would have been executed. And he essentially gave them the opportunity to take the easier way out. Mm. Uh, which is kind of interesting because Poirot did kind of a similar thing uh, in some of his other cases where he... Well, we talked about that. Was a, that was a choice. He made it into murder of the Orient Express. Exactly. It's, it's, it's kind of an extra legal choice in a way. Exactly. That he's not necessarily the one who leaves things up to the authorities mm -hmm. or the justice system, but that he himself decides what, what is the right thing to do in any given situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, that's not really up to him. Because again, the whole point of the movie is that it shows that Poirot completely lost control here. Like he can't even prevent Jackie from taking the easy way out essentially and killing both of them. So that's why I think the whole movie ends on such a somber note because uh, when he leaves the boat for the final time, he's accompanied by five body bags and he wasn't able to prevent any of those deaths. And that is a pretty colossal failure uh, in his career. And that's, that's why I think it fit with the choices they have previously made. Uh, but again, I do think that there is an interesting component to what happens in the book where he's essentially the one who makes the choice for them as opposed to Jackie doing it surprisingly and catching him off guard. Yeah. And I, and I will say I, uh, in, in a movie where I've been a little critical of how it, the, the look of it at certain points um, or, you know, even maybe like not being as into well, I appreciate that there's more action. Maybe I'm not as into some of it as I can, because a lot of it's them rehashing what certain characters are doing. And at any given moment, it was a little hard to maybe keep track of all the characters. I thought the shot of the, there's a couple shots we get of those body bags. And I thought both of them were actually like uh, pretty well done in the context of wherever they showed up in the movie. And it's like 
gives it some weight and it's like uh, like you said it kind of kind of puts it in the back of your mind like oh like you know pro might have screwed the pooch on this one as much as he is kind of like the hero of these stories so i thought like you know brana at least like got those moments right yeah and there was also a very cool kind of haunting shot that i really liked when they uh find uh louise's body the rose leslie character mm, like, oh yeah, the, the yeah. Was turning off, and the glass cracks and mm-hmm. uh that's that's very different than how they find her body in the book and i thought that was a really cool visual as well yeah. again like brana does have have some flair as a director like he does have cool ideas sometimes for how to stage scenes properly uh, i just wish the overall look had kind of uh added up to something a bit more uh elegant than uh just these occasional moments where he really knocks it out of the park. Yeah, in light of you saying that, I'll be curious what the to see what you think about Belfast. Like, I, I mean, I didn't love Belfast, but I'm going to watch it again before we talk about it, and I'm, and I will hopefully have some stronger opinions. But it's just interesting, like you know, he did what he did here, but that one, uh, you know, is like a big Oscar player and stuff. So uh, yeah, he's such a strange even... filmmaker. I mean, I don't know if you saw the statistic, but he is now the guy I think with the most Oscar nominations in different categories. Right. Is he have it like what both acting categories, writing, directing, and producing? Yeah, I think it's like seven or eight different categories. And the thing is, like, he's made a lot of very highly acclaimed Shakespeare adaptations and then Marvel, Marvel movies, video game Thor, movies, Artemis Fowl. I genuinely think that he takes, at least that's my suspicion, that he takes these directing gigs to make the kind of money uh, that allows him to direct movies like Belfast. Yeah. Which, I mean, fair enough. Uh, if that's his approach, it just means that he has some genuine garbage on his resume. And that's kind of unfortunate because I think that when he uh, is genuinely passionate about a project, like he really gives it his all and you get some really interesting results. Yeah. So he um, had one for that this material is something that he is uh, genuinely passionate about. Yeah. So he had one for like, he got actor in a leading role and director for Henry V, which I've not seen uh, a short film in 1993 then uh, writing adapted screenplay for Hamlet. Oh yeah, well, still a lot. And then actor in a supporting role for My Week with Marilyn. And then oh, that's right. I forgot. And, and then and then, produ- and then producing. I've never actually seen My Week with Marilyn. And then producing for Belfast and original screenplay for Belfast. So yeah, eight mm-hmm. eight categories. I think that is that's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, in very very interesting career he had. Uh, Fred, any final thoughts on uh, Death on the Nile? Um. No, not in particular. Just what I previously said already. I hope we get another one. Um, I'm not entirely sure which Agatha Christie book would be uh, next on the list for him. Mm-hmm. Probably one called Evil Under the Sun. Hmm. That one already got adapted in the 1980s, and that's kind of the other go-to one uh, that Poro fans really like. But yeah, I hope he gets another chance of making one of these. If he feels passionate about it, then uh, yeah, maybe in 2024, 2025, uh, we'll get another one. And yeah, we'll I guess like I said... Another part on it. <laughs> yeah like i said he did a lot of um they they tried to do a lot of different things with these supporting characters that like are, are able to only get so much time you know whether it was the um you know in, there's something to be said for like trying to do something with a same-sex couple in a story in the 30s or a, or, or an interracial one for that matter like we didn't talk that much about uh rosalie and um uh okay. and salome but like i mean i just I get, I, I appreciate the efforts to diversify it, but like, there's so much going on that I don't think you can like fully explore the implications of something like that. You can explore other issues. And if you, I don't know, just cut down even more stuff. And I mean, I guess maybe at that point you're getting away from what, what makes it really an Agatha Christie story. But like, I still think there's like ways for you to accomplish exploring those kind of issues in a movie without like uh, giving a lot of those type of stories, like the very short strict or just like having them be like a revelation in a moment or something like that. So I would hope that like, if he tackles another one of these, like they find a way to like, you know, just find the stories that really matter and will resonate and cut even more fat. So um, cause I see potential is what I'll say in this stuff. It's just, I didn't, I have I can't say I've loved either one of these though. I think I like this marginally better than uh, murder on the Orient express Fred, before you log off, uh, what else have you been watching recently? The one you want to recommend? I saw on the letterbox earlier, you gave a glowing review to, uh, one of my personal favorites, Philomena, but I don't know if there's anything else you want to plug. <laughs> yeah. So first, uh, I want to mention to Agatha Christie, uh, once the first one I already mentioned the original, uh, Death on the Nile adaptation mm. from 1978 is currently streaming on the Criterion channel, mm. uh, which is great because when I watched the movie uh, about a month after I listened to it on audiobook, it wasn't streaming anywhere. You couldn't even buy it or rent it digitally anywhere. So mm. I actually had to buy an old Blu-ray copy. So now all of a sudden it's streaming on the Criterion channel, which is uh, 
really advantageous for anyone who wants to watch it. And again, it's a really funny movie. The cast is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I mentioned some of the heavy hitters already. So um, definitely give that one a try, especially if you're interested in another approach to this material than what Rana did with it. Mm. Uh, the other Agatha Christie adaptation I always like to plug is a BBC miniseries from either 2015 or 2016. I don't remember the exact year. Uh, an adaptation of And Then There Were None with uh, a very high-profile cast, including uh, Sam Neill is in that one, Charles Dance, Toby Stevens, uh, Aidan Turner, whom you might know from the Poldark TV show, and uh, Miranda Richardson, who had a whole bunch of great roles in uh, British historical dramas in the 80s and 90s, but you'd probably recognize as Rita Skeeter from the Harry Potter movies. Hmm. Um, and it's a really intense adaptation of what I already said is one of my favorite books, uh, and very off-brand for Agatha Christie in the sense that it's more of a psychological drama than a detective story. Lots of dead bodies. So in that sense, it's very similar to what yeah. she normally does. Yeah, Charles Dance has four Emmy nominations since 2006, and none of them were for Game of Thrones. That was just a very... I uh, did not realize that, actually. Yeah, just a very what, legendary what, what, performance there. And what, uh, what, for, for what, what, are the, what are the four? The nominated something for? in 2006 for a thing called uh, Bleak House, Outstanding Lead Actor in a Miniseries or Movie. Uh, outstanding narrator for something called Savage Kingdom in 2018 and 2019, and then guest actor for The Crown, which he was very good on The Crown. Uh, oh, but yeah, right. it's just I, I just would have assumed he would have gotten like one for Game of Thrones with how many Emmy nominations Game of Thrones got over the years, you know? So That's, that is surprising, yeah. But he, but he's really good in that, so I definitely recommend that you check that out. Uh, and then outside of Agatha Christie, uh, the one movie I really want to give a shout out to because uh, it got a little bit of attention now that it's nominated for Best uh, International Feature at the Oscars. Uh, but it's still a bit of an obscurity that's uh, Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom, which was uh, the submission from Bhutan, which mm. shocked everybody on uh, Tuesday last week when it uh, snuck into the category with a whole bunch of other heavy hitters. And um, it's available for rent now on uh, Amazon, Apple, the usual platforms. And it's really just a very mesmerizing depiction of a country that people here don't really know much about, probably haven't read much about. Uh, just really beautiful locales. Uh, a very inspiring story about a teacher who goes to a remote village uh, and who sort of finds his love for teaching, which he didn't necessarily have before. Uh, and people are kind of criticizing it because it's a story that's been told very often. Uh, but it comes from a country that's not exactly known for its film industry. And it's a very genuine effort. They actually shot it in that remote village with one single camera. Um, wow. Some of the actors in it have never actually seen a camera before. They didn't know what a movie was. So just in that sense, it's a very unique piece of filmmaking. Did, it's on demand, or did you say it was also on a streaming service? Um, it, it is on demand. Yeah, but, no, that's uh, what I'm saying. Yeah, you can rent it on Amazon for $6.99 or YouTube for $4.99 or Apple TV. Yeah, for exactly. Yeah. So it's not one of those uh, like premium releases where you have yeah, to sell yeah, yeah. 20 bucks. Yeah, good recommendation um, so because that popped up and I saw like a couple of people mention it here and there as like a nice surprise, but I didn't really, I hadn't really been able to learn much about it yet. So I'll try and get to that before the Oscars. Yeah, it's a really beautiful film. Uh, kind of simple as far as filmmaking goes, but at the same time, again, just it's always nice in that category to explore movies from countries that don't really get a lot of exposure, like some of the usual suspects do. Um, and for that, for that alone, it was really a heartening experience. And I, I genuinely enjoyed it for what it was. So I highly recommend people yeah. give that, give that a yeah. try. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes uh, for anyone that wants to, was curious what the critics think about that at the moment. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, I the one recommendation I'll make is I watched uh, a couple days ago, I watched Oslo August 31st, which is the Walking Trier movie from 2011. I, I did that in advance of doing a podcast on The Worst Person in the World, which I think I'll be doing next week with our friend Ben when I finally have a chance to see that one, which uh, got a Best Original Screenplay nomination in addition to Best International Feature. But uh, uh, Oslo August 31st, is uh, it, has a, it has the actor uh, Anders Daniel Nelson Lee, who is going to be in Worst Person in the World, was also in Bergman Island, which I talked about with Ben uh, earlier this year. So, but like, just because it was another, I'd only seen one other Walking Trier movie. So I figured I should watch another one before I did the Worst Person in the World podcast. Also, August 31st is only an hour and 35 minutes. And uh, you'd have to, you can like rent it on Amazon and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, it just, it tells the day in the life of a guy named Anders, who's like a recovering drug addict, who's, you know, kind of going around also and just connecting with old friends. But it's a uh, very powerful and a very, very uh, uh, memorable leading performance about a guy who you can really feel is just like 
barely hanging on as he's like trying to recover from uh from his addiction but also figure out like what he's going to do with his life uh very moving very powerful highly recommend you check it out if you think you like any of joaquin cheer's stuff uh fred before we sign off uh where can people find your letterbox and twitter and stuff like that yes please follow me on letterbox as always uh username there is fred kolb f-r-e-d-k-o-l-b uh, yeah, and uh, I'll probably make my way through a lot of Oscar nominees over the next couple of days and weeks. So if you want to know what I think about those, definitely give me a follow. Uh, not as active on Twitter, but if you're interested in what my Wordle scores are, you can give me a follow there too. <laughs> the Twitter handle is at uh, Fred the German. Yeah, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y on Twitter and Letterbox. The podcast Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. The podcast email is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, I'm again not sure exactly because uh, I'm putting a bunch of this Batman stuff out along uh, with this stuff as we finish out 2021 and we have other 2022 stuff like Death on the Nile to talk about. Though who knows, at some point within the next two weeks, I'll probably have that final uh, Oscar podcast with Fred on Belfast as well as, you know, uh, something on uh, the Batman and we'll then be, you know, getting to our top 10 podcast and uh, whatever other new releases there are in March. Cause you'll probably, you're probably listening to this like right at the end of February, I'm guessing. So uh, thanks again to Fred for joining again. Uh, stay tuned for him joining us to round out the best picture talk. And uh, thanks to uh, everyone for listening. So we'll see you next time. <laughs>